0: This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. You know, so sourcing those deals, you know, obviously you had relationships with these brokers, right? But you said your, your own market, uh, what would you say, the, the properties that you see that are on market that you're purchasing are is like zero.
1: Yeah. Our, our hit rate on marketed deals is, is very near zero. Uh, You know, we, there's a, there's a lot of competition out there for uh, acquiring multifamily assets, as you well know, and everybody's listened to this show, I'm sure knows that it's a competitive landscape out there. And really the one thing that, that gives any buyer a leg up in, in sourcing deals is a track record with the broker. And fortunately we had track records with, uh, with these, with both of these brokers, they both knew us. Uh, We've closed, we closed with one of them before with another one we hadn't closed with yet, but of course they knew that we owned over a thousand units in the market and, you know, and that sort of stuff. So that, that went a long way, Uh, you know, but uh, normally if we're, most of the stuff we buy is off market, but every once in a while we get lucky on a marketed deal and it's not for lack of trying. I mean, we're underwriting every marketed deal in the markets that we're active in. It's just, we don't usually get them.
0: <laughs> okay. So, you know, I've heard different people talk about, you know, an off-market deal and, and what's a real off-market deal, you know, and could you elaborate, you know, just like, you know, a broker sends a deal, he says it's off-market, but is it really off-market? Uh, you know, could you just tell us, you know, walk through that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I, d- I define off-market deals in, the, in, in uh, residing in one of three different buckets, um, there's the off market deal, which is one where, uh, someone wants to sell and they call every broker they know, telling them they want to sell and asking for their opinion of the property's value. All the brokers render those opinions and then immediately call, uh, you know, every buyer on their list, trying to round up a buyer so that they can get a leg up on getting the listing by telling the seller, I've got two buyers that really want it. So give me the listing or I'll get you the offer beforehand, or they're trying to get in before the other broker gets the listing. Right? So that's, that's off market deal. Number one, there's, there's not much difference between that and a marketed deal because everybody knows about it. There's probably been, you know, 30 people on that deal uh, just as if they would have put it on the market. So that's, that's category number one. Category number two off market deal is the one where you've got the seller that just is completely overpriced. Every broker is way too embarrassed to take it out to market uh, at the seller's price because they know nobody's going to want to buy it at that price. So they call up their most inexperienced buyers, the ones that have been uh, hounding them and annoying them the most to buy something that no one will sell to. And they'll see if uh, if one of those will bite at this, quote unquote, you know, off market great deal. And basically they're just looking for a sucker. Uh, That's off market deal bucket number two. And in my opinion, it's probably the most common, quote unquote, off market deal. And it's certainly the most common one that you'll hear about from anyone that hasn't done a lot of volume. And then the third uh, bucket of off-market deal is the one where the seller says to a broker, hey, you know, you sold me this deal. I want you to sell it for me. Uh, I really don't want to spook my employees and have this thing sitting on the market having 20 tours, you know, just get me an offer from your top buyer. And that broker will call one, two or three of their, you know, most reliable buyers and offer them the chance to buy it uh, without it going on the market. Those are the kind of off-market deals we're looking for. Okay. No, that's awesome.
0: Uh, yeah, we don't want to be in, in those first two categories, especially the second one, right, as a buyer. Uh, right. No doubt about it. But uh, But, you know, as far as, you know, these deals that, you know, the seller, you said the seller, you know, he bought this deal from this broker, and so he's going to use him again, and he wants him to sell it doesn't want to spook the employees. So it's just, you know, see if you can sell it for me, or see what interest you can get. Uh, you know, how are you, you know, How does that start? You know, obviously, you're starting that relationship, right? And could you walk us through that a little bit and how that has happened for you? Uh, or, or maybe even how that's changed over your career?
1: So, are, are you asking how does that broker get that phone call or how does that, how do you as a buyer get that phone call from the broker? That's right. You uh, as the
0: buyer. Yeah, you yeah. as a buyer getting that phone call from the broker, what, what gets you to that point?
1: Closing deals. That's the only thing that gets you there. You, that, that broker is not going to call you and I repeat that broker is not going to call you with that category three off market deal unless they've sold you something before. Because what this seller is asking the broker to do, think about this for a minute from the other side of the table, what that, what that seller is asking the broker to do is bring me an offer from a reliable buyer, someone that you can vouch for that's going to get this deal done and is going to close and not give me a lot of hassle. Well, the only way that broker is going to put that relationship with that buyer or that seller at risk on their word of who a good buyer is for that deal is if they know that buyer really well and have closed deals with them before and they know how they act in a transaction. They know their closers. They know they don't screw around. They know they don't retrade and nitpick over stupid little repair items. Uh, if, if you've, if you've been able to close with a broker and show them all those things, you can make it to that list. Another piece of it is, you know, what do you own in the market? You know, if it's your first or second deal in the market, and they have a client that owns 2000 units in the market, it's more likely they're going to call the guy with 2000 units than the guy that has, you know, one property or, or perhaps no properties. So close, you know, everybody always asks, how do you get deals? You get deals by closing deals. And now you have this ridiculous chicken and the egg scenario about how do you get deals to close deals or how do you close you know, deals, you know where to I'm going. deals if you don't have deals. I know, I, I know I, I've lived it. I know exactly where you're going. <laughs> So, so what do we do then? What's your suggestion? <laughs> well, uh, it's it's tricky, and you know it, it takes a lot of time. Here's a great example. Uh, you know, we uh, uh, I wanted to expand into a new market. And this was uh, you know, a few years ago, and and I had closed a bunch of stuff in another market, and you know I wanted to get into this new market, and you I was calling on deals that were on the market, and. I mean, you know, brokers wouldn't give me the time of day and it's like, you know, look, I own over a thousand units and it's like, I still couldn't get them to return my phone calls. Finally, uh, one of the brokers just random uh, calls me on this deal that I had. uh, i had been calling this firm. I think I left like four messages for one of the brokers on this deal. And then randomly another broker on the deal calls me because, you know, usually there's like two or three guys on, you know, or on on every uh, brokers on every listing one of the other ones calls me and and I and he's like yeah you know just trying to see if you're interested and I said you know I'm I'm interested enough that you know I left like three messages for so and so and he's like oh, dang that guy you know <laughs> and, and he's like uh, he's like I checked you out you know I looked in our in our company database and I found that you closed some deals over in this other city and uh, you know I talked to that broker and he had some good things to say about you. So I wanted to see, you know, what your level of interest was and literally getting the respect of this broker that didn't know me from Adam really came from him talking to somebody in another office in another city with the same brokerage. um, And that's what, you know, got him to take my call. So it's closing deals means you know, it doesn't even have to be in that same market. You can leverage properties you own in other markets. So if you if you own somewhere else and you can get that broker to you know get in touch with the brokers in the market where you're looking to go, it can it can at least help you. It puts one foot forward. But man, I mean even if it means buying a property you you otherwise wouldn't buy, like for example, you know, I wanted to get into Dallas and it was really tough. And this was, you know, I don't know, ten or 15 years ago, and I bought a, uh, a 60 unit deal there. Which you know, nowadays I wouldn't touch a 60 unit deal with a 10 foot pole, but uh, it was just I had to buy something just to own something in that market, otherwise, I would never have gotten anywhere. So, uh, you know, if it means going and buying a duplex and saying, like, hey, I own a duplex in this market, I'm looking to you know, get to bigger properties, you know, at least you own something and, and you're not just some guy from halfway across the country uh, that that's never even been there, doesn't own anything there. So it's, it's baby steps and it's difficult and it takes time and it takes work. And it's not just, oh, you know, hey, I'll buy you a cup of coffee kind of thing. It doesn't work that way.
0: Interesting. That's what I hear though, too. It's like, you know, take them out to coffee, you know, uh, get to know them, but you got to close deals, right? You got to yeah, see you that close, you're yeah. you're you're serious. Anyway, I, yeah. I guess there's too many tire kickers, right? That they that they don't they don't know if you're serious, like you say.
1: Way too, I mean, brokers aren't thirsty. They don't need a cup of coffee. They they want to they want to close deals. You know, it's like that's what they want to do, and that's the only way you're going to get their attention uh, you know, is to, is to show them how you act in a transaction, which is difficult as we just, you know, talked about because there is a chicken in the egg scenario and it's, um, uh, it's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Right.
0: That's right. That's right. And so what about, um, you know, are all deals that you're doing through a broker? Or are you also finding directly from a seller or are there other ways?
1: Man, uh, 99% come through brokers. Uh, yeah, 99%. You know, you, you've, um, geez, it, it might be one thing to find an unsophisticated single-family landlord that wants to sell their house and responds to your yellow letter or postcard or what have you. Uh, you know, you can send out 10,000 of those letters and get one or two guys to respond to you. But when you're looking at 100, 200, 300, 500 unit apartment complexes, these owners are sophisticated. They've right. been through the drill. It's a good chance they've been through all the trials and tribulations that you're going through to become a buyer to begin with. And you know they're not just going to respond to your yellow letter or postcard. What they do is they talk to brokers because they're buyers, they're sellers. They, uh, you know, they get calls from brokers all the time going, Oh, Hey, what are you going to do with Marvin Gardens thinking of putting it on the market anytime soon? You know, and then they say something like, Oh, you know, I just refinanced it. We got a year or two years left on our loan. Then we're going to put it on the market. What do you think is happening in the background? The broker's typing that into their computer, you know, loan due in two years. So he's going to call that guy up when he's got 10 About months left months, on his yeah. loan and say, you know, Hey, you know, so the brokers know who's poised to sell. Uh, and they know the phone number and the email address of all the owners and they've got a great network and anybody else doesn't have that.
0: Nice. How many brokers at one time are you communicating with or, you know, staying top of mind with? Or, Everyone. Or... Everyone.
1: Every, Every one anyone. of them. Every broker in every market, we, we will be talking to them on a regular basis. And usually it's because we're talking about deals. I mean, you know, look, we're in, uh, you know, we're in uh, Georgia, Florida, Carolinas, Arizona. You know, there's deals coming out of there all the time, right? By these brokerage shops. We're dealing with brokers that are, you know, th- there's any given market is going to have, you know, a, a core group of, of brokers that sell 90% of the product out of that market. Uh, they're always they always have something out there. And, uh, you know, they're um, they're saying, uh, you know, they're they're they, you know, always just calling them up and, hey, what's going on with this or that? And we're talking to them all the time. You know, another here's a funny story. I'll give you a good one. I called one of our brokers the other day and I said I said, look, I'm only reason I'm calling you is to is to make you money. And of course, he immediately responds with, okay, you have my attention, right? (laughs) I said, we've got this property. I said, you know, we're going to want to sell it probably within the next year. I said, but right now it's the only asset we own in that market. I said, I cannot sell it and exit my physical presence in this market. I said, so if you want to sell this deal for me, you have to bring me two off-market deals that I can buy. And then you can sell this and you'll make three commissions. Two days later, he calls me up and he goes, I've got two off-market deals for you.
0: <laughs> wow. I love that.
1: So that's, that's how it works.
0: Wow. So are these, are these two that you're going to be able to pursue you think or, or you are pursuing?
1: We are pursuing them and we will be putting offers on them whether or not we get them. I don't know. We'll right. see. But uh, uh, it's looking, it's, it's promising. From. Wow.
0: I love that take on it. I, the only reason I'm calling you is to make you money and to sell this property. You need to bring me another one. Uh, yeah, so he's he's thinking dollar signs, right? He's
1: thinking, yeah, I mean these uh, these two deals. If we get them, it's uh, it's over a hundred million dollars. So that's a big commission.
0: Yeah, yeah, plus selling. Yeah, awesome. So. You know, so you're you're connecting with as many as possible. Tell me, like that routine. Is it like a, a weekly thing? Is it every other week? Is this just something you keep in your CRM? So you know, hey, we need to call John in Georgia. You know, we hadn't talked to him in two weeks. Or how do you track that?
1: No, we don't. We don't track it, and and we aren't calling them just to say hello. You know, right. we're calling them because we're talking about a deal. Uh, we're going to call them on one of their listings. We're going to call and see how the offers are going. We're going to call and. Uh, you know, find out what the call for offer date is, you know, there's probably two or three different variety of touch points, um, you know, during a listing cycle, and brokers always have something that's out. So there's always a deal to talk about, we're going to call and get more information, we're going to talk about the rental comps, Uh, we're going to schedule a tour, we're going to see them in person when we go out there and tour, we might spend the whole day with them, Uh, geez, I think what was a week before last? My, uh, my chief investment officer looked at like, I think is 12 subject properties uh, in two, two or three states, uh, you know, with uh, probably six different brokers, you know, spending a half a day to a full day with each of them. So uh, it's just constant touch points.
0: Wow. And are you doing anything extra out of the ordinary for, for brokers, like specific brokers or personally for them or I mean, whatever it may be?
1: Like buying them baseball game tickets and stuff like go. that. And no, uh, we, we probably should, but we don't. Instead, what we do is we, you know, we buy real estate, which gets them commissions. And we don't give them a bunch of hassle when we're in the escrow process. You know, I, I tell broke this is what I do special for brokers. I say, look, when I write you this offer and you call you're gonna call me and tell me the offer is accepted. The next time you hear from me is gonna be when I say we're closing tomorrow. So in between those two times, I'm not gonna be hounding you for all kinds of stupid stuff. You know, if the if the lender needs something, sure, I'm gonna have to ask for it and get it. But we're gonna have all of our st- Stuff lined up. We're we're not going to be you know a pain in the ass. We're just going to get this deal done and leave you alone. And brokers appreciate that because they have a lot to do. So uh, that's that's the one special thing we do. I guess is is try to make their job easy. Um, we probably should buy them baseball game tickets while we're at it. I guess. <laughs>
0: So any other any other best practices that maybe you see other people doing that are, you know or anything they're other people are doing that you're like oh, wait a minute that's why are you all doing that that broker's never going to sell you all the property other than not having a you know have closed a deal yet or or just causing them a lot of trouble in uh, anything extraordinary that you're doing i don't know or you've seen other people do
1: I, you know, I don't, I'm not keeping track really of what other people are doing. I'm running my own race and, you know, kind of everybody else is doing whatever it is that they do. I just, I just know that brokers are busy and they get a lot of people kicking a lot of tires that go nowhere. And so if there's anything on that kind of don't do this list um, it's, you know, don't be a tire kicker. Uh, You know, and another thing don't do is don't just write an offer on every deal. You know, if the deal is not your deal, uh, You know, don't write an offer on it, you know, and you see this so often, you know, where, you know, guys will, they'll write a ridiculously low offer because they can't even get close thinking that they're going to convince the broker that, you know, it's not worth what they're asking when everybody else is probably writing offers right near their, you know, whisper price. Don't be that guy. And, you know, and, and, and don't feel like you have to write an offer on every single deal, even though, you know, you either can't perform, won't perform, or don't really want it or whatever the case may be.
0: Are there, are there any other ways that, you've, that you source deals that, that we haven't talked about that aren't off market or uh, what are some other ways that maybe properties, you know, you've purchased properties that, that wasn't through a broker?
1: You know, we, we try, we, we started a campaign not too long ago, try to, uh, to uh, go straight to owners by, you know, running a list of every suitable property in an MSA that we were interested in, narrowing that list down trying to, you know, skip trace the owner to figure out who the decision maker is, reaching out to them and contacting them. We're doing a little bit of that right now. It hasn't produced any fruit yet, uh, but if it does, that's great. Um, Another thing, you know, we've had kind of two other avenues. You know, one is where we've closed on a deal with a group through a broker. And then after the deal closes, they reach out to us and say, you know, hey, you know, we're uh, next quarter, we're going to sell this other deal. You know, would you guys be interested in taking a look at that? Um, And so that's been an an avenue for us. And we've, of course, say yes. Um, Having said that we haven't closed on anything because, you know, they either wanted too much or whatever hasn't, hasn't produced any fruit yet, but that's a great way to go. If, if, um, if you connect on one. And then another way is, is we know some institutional sellers and uh, some larger groups and, you know, even some of my guys have worked for larger institutional owners and so we also, you know, reach out to guys we know that own 10 or 20, 30,000 units. And we'll, you know, talk to them about what, you know, they're always selling something, you know, so what, what are your dispositions for next quarter? You know, and can we get an advanced look at them? And, you know, we've had some success in, in, um, in getting that as well. We have, again, we haven't closed anything through that channel yet, but I think it's just a matter of time. Okay.
0: So so you're finding p- owners or that have 10,000 units or more and then you're just connecting with them and asking about their dispositions for next quarter trying to really build that relationship with them i guess so they know you're also a serious buyer
1: just like the broker. Well, not quite. You know, we we're only doing that with groups that we actually have a relationship with. Okay. You know you know there's there might be a guy there that we know through some other means or you know cuz you know, a couple, a couple of my guys. I mean, they work for large institutional groups, and so you know, of course, you know, it's a small world, and people know each other. And right. you know, maybe they, you know, there was what I remember one we looked at, and you go, my uh, my CFO goes, I trained this guy when he was, you know. So I mean, it's that kind of a relationship, you know, where you know they've known each other for twenty years, and he can call them up and say, you know, hey man, what are you guys, you know, what are you guys disposing of next quarter, and and they'll tell him. You know, nobody can just, no unknown guy can just call up an institutional seller and go, oh, I'm just calling for your disposition list. Nobody's going to respond to that. But, you know, if you know someone, you might get it. So it sounds like, you know, whether we're getting started or whether we have almost,
0: you know, 3,000 units like yourself or more, um, that brokers are our best way to focus our energy at the, at the moment anyway, until we get to a bigger level at least. Uh, but it seems like, I mean, we should be focusing on brokerages at what 99% of deals are coming through them.
1: Yeah. And even when you get big 99% of your deals will still come through brokers, uh, one way or another. I mean, it doesn't mean they're going to be listed and marketed, but they're still going to come through brokers, you know, brokers are matchmakers, you know, and, um, you know, whether you're, you know, if, if you're out, if you're single and mingling and, you know, and you, you go to the bar, you hope you have a wingman or something that helps make some introductions, if that's what you need. I mean, it, the whole world kind of works that way, no matter what, you know, you go to want to buy a car, there's a car salesman. I mean, you know, there's always something, someone that's in the, in the middle of the transaction and, and that's how that's how business is done. It's no different here.
0: Is there, are, are there any ways that stand out that, that you've improved this process uh, either recent, recently or maybe ways, you know, after you, you were like years in that, okay, you know, some a light bulb went off that, okay, this, this worked a lot better if we do it this way.
1: The light bulb for me was recognizing and being real with the fact of how important closing deals is. Uh, because when I hadn't closed any deals, of course, I want to think or I want to convince myself that that's irrelevant. And I can demonstrate to brokers that I'm a reliable purchaser and that I've got all these investors or these resources or whatever. Um, and none of that means anything uh, because this is a entirely relationship driven business. Uh, it's funny. I remember uh, when we were really early on in this, uh, a partner of mine was uh uh, career single family guy, you know, home builder, always done single family. And you know, in the single family space, you know, everything's done in MLS, right? You list a house in the MLS, buyer comes along, sees the, you know, their broker, whatever, sees the MLS listing, you submit an offer. If you're the best offer, it gets accepted. The only thing that matters is the quality of your offer. Uh, but the multifamily world is so different. I remember one time he came to me and he goes, why is there no MLS for multifamily? How are we supposed to find all these deals if there's no MLS for us to go to, to know what's for sale? And I didn't have a great answer. You know, I was just like, well, I don't know it's how stuff is done. It's bigger, you know, large multifamily. Maybe it's a smaller world. I don't really know. But now I, you know, after doing this for 30 years, I know what the answer is. The, the answer is that this is 100% relationship business. That's why stuff isn't on an MLS because brokers don't want to just sell to anybody that submits an offer. They want to submit to someone they know and can rely upon and isn't going to be a pain. And the only way that they get that is with a relationship of some form. So I really underestimated the importance of relationships early on and wanted to refuse to accept it. Uh, So what have I refined? I've refined that that's not true. (laughs) relationships are everything.
0: Why don't we back up a little bit and maybe give us, you know, how you got started raising capital, how, how you started building those relationships with investors and, and then let's grow into, you know, where you're at today.
1: Gosh, you know, my, my first raising capital experience is kind of a funny story. Um, uh, you know, we were, we were talking, uh, you know, before we started this podcast that I formerly I was in a law enforcement career and, um, you know, I, uh, I was doing real estate on the side while I was doing my, you know, law enforcement job, you know, by night and real estate by day is, is kind of how I was doing it. And, you know, I was buying, fixing up and reselling houses. And, uh, I was finally where the point where my uh, real estate business or the job was getting in the way of my real estate business. I'm like, I got to get out of this, you know, this job and just start, you know, just fo- focus a hundred percent on the real estate side. So I put in my notice at the department and, and then I went over to City Hall and I, I uh, reserved a room at the community center. And so I went back, go back to the station. I tell all the guys that I work with, I said, guys, I just put in my two weeks notice, but I'm doing this real estate thing, as you all know, and I, I just I just reserved the room at the community center. Everybody come down. I'm going to tell you what I'm doing in real estate. So everybody comes down to the room, fills that room up. I mean, it was packed with people. And I gave this little show, a little dog and pony show about what I was doing with real estate. and you know, houses and all that kind of stuff. And I said, look, if any of you guys will invest with me, I'll split the profits with you. And so I said, I'm I'm gonna raise five hundred thousand dollars, I'll take investments as small as five grand and you know, and I'll I'll split, you know, the fifty fifty uh, you know, to the to the group. And, you know, <laughs> after it was like a two hour meeting, I walked out of that room. I had 28 investors amongst them invested 500 grand, but I now I had 28 investors all packing heat. Every one of them has got guns. They all know how to use it. They all know how to off me if they, if they want to and get away with it. So I'm like, crap, you know, now not only do I have to perform, but if I lose any of these guys' money, I'm a dead man. <laughs> that was my first experience raising capital. How's You're that going to have pressure? a
0: lot of trouble if you mess up. <laughs> that's, a, that's some pressure, man. <laughs> wow. Wow. And, you know, I was thinking about that. I mean, you obviously you had a plan. I mean, you you were already in the business. You are already doing some deals. You had a game plan. Uh, but you know, one thing it seems though, like you, you already had a previous relationship with all these guys, right? They already knew you. They already trusted you. You you had been, you know, with law enforcement for nu- numerous years working with these guys. Uh, you know, so, you know, it just seems like that was a big help there, right? I mean, they, they knew you and
1: trusted you. That, that's exactly right. And that's the only reason that it happened. And, you know, I say that, you know, in, when it comes to raising money from investors and, you know, over the, I've been, I've been working with investor money now for, I guess about 22 years and raised over hundred million dollars. So I've come to learn a few things in the course of having done all that. And one of the things that I've learned is there's a, there's three trust curves that you have to, uh, you have to get each investor to climb each of those three trust curves. The first trust curve you have to get them to climb is they have to trust you. And this is kind of a common mistake with people who are out trying to raise money is they want to say like, Hey, everybody, I've got this deal. Right. And they want to focus on the deal, but nobody cares about the deal. What matters is whether or not they trust you. Now, here I am, you know, I've worked with these guys as they there 14 years. Right. I mean, I was there for a long time. And not only that, it was a law enforcement job where they know I've passed a psych test, a background and you know, polygraph and, you know, every other kind of examination into my character. So, you know, between those two things, the tr- that trust curve was already met, uh, when everybody walked in that room, uh, you know, we can get onto the other two trust curves in a minute, but, but what you're saying is exactly 100% true. They trusted me. And that's the only reason that I had those investors.
0: I was thinking about like relating that to how we're trying to raise capital now. I mean, you, you spent time with them like many, many hours, you know, obviously we're not going to do that with every investor now, but it does take time, right? It takes many interactions and nurturing.
1: It does. It takes time. It takes, it takes the, uh, you know, you have to have an ability to put your character on display. And, you know, one of the ways that, uh, that, that's been really helpful for me is, is my former career in law enforcement because, you know, people trust, most people trust police, right? And, and uh, you know, knowing what you have to go through to even get into that business, they, you know, people understand that that's a, it's a high level of trust. I mean, your trust to, you know, they give you a, a car and a gun and tell you to go drive around lights and sirens around the city, you know, you know, everybody has to trust you in order to do those things. And so uh, trusting you with some dollars is a little bit easier, uh, you know, when they see that background. Now, of course, not everybody that's going to raise money is going to have that advantage. So whatever advantage it is that that you have, you know, you've got to play to that advantage for your circumstance. Mine was just different. And that was mine.
0: That's uh, interesting. You have to play to your advantage. And, and I've heard, you know, different people talk about like, you know, are you... Uh, at a high level in corporate America, well, you know, obviously have lots of relationships there that you can start letting people know you're in real estate and what you're doing, right? Just to start piquing their curiosity, and but hopefully it's people that you've that have trust you because of all this time you spent with them.
1: Yeah, and you know, raising capital always starts with your inner circle. Um, you know, it's like people always go like, "Oh, where can I go?" to meet investors? You know, should I go to the Rotary Club or, you know, what, you know, whatever, you know, where do I go to meet investors? And the, you don't go anywhere to meet investors. What you do when you have a, you know, you want to fund a deal is you have to go to people you already know. Uh, you know, you're not going to meet someone for the first time and automatically uh, get them over, you know, the three trust curves that we're going to talk about on the show and have them sign a subscription agreement. Uh, it's, it's going to take uh, a bit of time. And so starting with your inner circle, which means friends and family, you know, it, let's say you're going to start up a company, you know, you invented a, some software product or whatever, and you're going to start up a company. Where does the seed money for most small companies like that come from? it's friends and family every time, you know, you don't just go to an angel investor group or a VC firm, you know, and get money. That first round of funding is always like friends and family and borrowed money and credit lines and your home equity and, you know, wherever you can come up with any resources to do the deal with what you already have.
0: Nice. So yeah, the first round, anywhere you can come up with it personally. Right. That's it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So they have to trust you. And, and, uh, yeah, and one thing I wanted to reiterate also, you said, you know, they try to focus on the deal, uh, before, before they've built the trust. And I, I've see, I see that often as well. And, you know, I've made those mistakes, you know, myself, but, uh, you know, really being focused on this deal, bringing up the deal too fast, you know, before, maybe even the, you know, the second time you've talked to this person, you know, uh,
1: Well, this gets into the second and the third trust curve. You know, so we talked about the first one is they have to trust you. The second trust curve is that they have to trust real estate as an investment class. So, you know, they're probably used to investing in stocks and bonds and, you know, mutual funds or whatever. uh, And real estate is totally unknown or different to them. So the next hurdle is, you know, after they trust you, they have to trust that real estate is an appropriate investment for them. And then the third trust curve, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure, as we go on. But the third trust curve is they have to trust this specific deal. So you'll notice that that's the last trust curve. So what you cannot do is you can't go to somebody you've never met that doesn't invest in real estate and say, look at this deal I just, I'm, I'm getting. You want to invest in it. It's going to fall flat 10 times out of 10. It's going to go nowhere. So people always ask, you know, this is one of the most common questions I get, is what comes first, the deal or the money? Uh, you know and most people think you get a deal and the money will come or if you get the deal's good enough you'll find the money how many times have you ever heard that right lots all the time and and so you know my you know my counter argument to that is always this i say let's say for example you decided you were going to go do some shopping and you go down to the department store and you start throwing a bunch of stuff in your shopping cart and you go up to the cash register and you, you, you know, you're next in line. Now the, the clerk says, can I help you? And you say, yeah, I have all this stuff here I want to buy. Uh, can you hang on to it for me for a while while I go out and try to figure out where the money is to go pay for all this? And then you leave the store. You just completely wasted your time. If, if I'm going to go to the store, I want to know what is the credit limit on my credit card. And I'm going to make sure that all the stuff I throw in that shopping cart, is gonna be within the limit of my credit limit on my credit card. So to say that I'm gonna go out and go find a hundred unit property that costs $10 million and I don't have no money of my own, I'm gonna go out and go find the money with this great deal I got, you're fooling yourself.
0: I like that analogy. No, I agree, I agree. It's always just like yourself, those relationships that you had long before you you needed the, needed the equity or needed that, those investors, you had the relationships.
1: You did. And and since the, the deal itself is the last of the three trust curves, you've got to get over one and two before you go to number three. You don't start at number three. These have to be done in order. So, you know, the first mistake people make is they want to go to people they don't know and ask them for investments. That's mistake number one. The second mistake people make is they say, all right, let's say I'm going to go to people I know and I'm going to have to educate them and convince them on why real estate is right for them. Well, that's fine, but just recognize that that's one of the hardest jobs there is out there. And if you think that, you know, you're just tired of your nine to five and you want to quit your job and invest in real estate because your job's too hard. Just wait till you get to your new job of investing in real estate and find out how hard your job is when you're trying to convince people that know nothing about real estate, that real estate is a good investment for them.
0: Wow. So I I guess give us a little guidance there and how how to do that properly or maybe what's worked best for you. How how have you educated people or, you know, how did you, you you spent that two hours in that room with those officers. You know, what was that talk like compared to maybe, you know, what you're doing now to educate investors?
1: Yeah, you know, back then, uh, of course, I didn't know a lot of people. The only people I knew were the people I worked with. You know, cops aren't really all that well known for socializing a lot. So You know, it's like you kind of, you know, you know, your core group of folks and and that's who I went to and to get my first round of funding. But eventually, you know, I had to expand that uh, quite a bit. So, you know, now I got a bunch of people I already know and I got to convince them real estate is good. So, you know, what I did is I showed them, you know, stuff about, you know, what the median home price had done. Because, again, we were doing single family at the time. We weren't multifamily yet by that by that stage. Um, you know, where home prices were going, Show them before and after pictures of some of the houses I did, Show them how much money you made on some of these houses and how long it took, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and that kind of got to people's emotions where they thought, you know, wow, this looks really interesting. I want a piece of that. Uh, and that's how I got over that. Uh, you know, there's some guys in the multifamily space, you know, I'm sure you've had them on your show that are really good at sitting across from people and showing them charts and graphs and stats and figures and all that kind of stuff to convince them why real estate is good. And, and they'll do things like they'll go to uh, self-directed IRA custodians, for example, and they'll do a webinar or an in-person presentation, you know, on real estate and teach people about real estate. And by and large, it's, um, it's, it's a hard gig. I mean, it, it's a lot of education. What I've learned works the best for me is to stop doing all of that. And instead of educating people on why real estate is good, I would much, I get much more success by just educating people on why the deal is good. And those people already believe in real estate. So now I've, I've gotten to the stage in my career now where I've positioned myself where People who are interested in investing in real estate, especially passively through a passive investment, reach out to me because they either heard about me or know what we're doing and, and recognize, okay, this guy's a real estate expert. I want to invest with them. I'm already convinced I want to invest in real estate. I'm already convinced that I trust this person because they're the right one for the job. I already trust you know, that real estate is a good investment for me. All I have left is that third and final trust curve uh, of getting them to like the deal. Now, not to say that doesn't mean that we don't have to put out plenty of uh, stuff and be on podcasts and speak at conferences and do presentations at, at corporations and that sort of stuff to have our presence known, build that trust and kind of spread that real estate knowledge. But that's the, 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 the last step is that deal step. And that's, that's really what we're focused the most so, on. So what you're
0: saying is, this has is kind of a, evolved a little bit now, I, I guess, for yourself. Because now when people are coming to you, they're already interested in real estate. And so uh, so now you're they're, they're, they And they already trust you as well because of your track record, I'm sure, uh, for the most part. So you're going to get to know them a little bit. But they're already interested in real estate. They probably already maybe have already invested in real estate in some way. And, and now it's like you said, you can almost really quickly get to this third step.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what it is. So, so now it truly is find the deal and the money will come. So now what I can do is when we find a, a property that we want to acquire, let say we got to raise $10 million. I don't have to go, well, let me go see if I can find the $10 million before I put an offer on this deal. We just we just uh, put in the offer. We buy the deal you know, or get the deal under contract. Then we go out and raise the money. All we're doing is the third step. We're only convincing our list of folks that we already know wants to invest with us and we already know wants to invest in real estate. We're just gonna, we're just gonna show them the merits of this deal. And of course, if it fits for their goals, they'll invest. If it's not a fit for them, they don't invest and that's fine. Everybody has different goals, but we're really focused on that one last step. The mistake that a lot of people make is when you're new in this business, what they're trying to do is short circuit number one and number two and go straight to number three, because that's what they see us doing. But you, it doesn't work because number one and number two take a lot of time pre-deal to build up enough of an audience that trusts you and want to invest in real estate before you can go straight to step three. So you have to focus your efforts on step one and two until you get to the level where like where we got, you know, and now our track record speaks for itself. Our background is, is very obvious to people. And you know that gets us past number one and and people are they are they listen to your show or you know somebody else's show or they're on bigger pockets or whatever and they already know they like real estate and all I have to do is that one last step
0: nice okay so so let's move into that you know uh, have them trust a specific deal you know how, how do you do that how do you present that to them or wh- what does that process look like
1: the process is is giving them all the information. You want to give the investor everything. You want them to know everything about that, that deal that, that, you know, about that deal. And so for us, that means, you know, we're going to show them, uh, our entire financial underwriting, you know, we're going to show them a side-by-side comparison of the property's trailing, uh, income performance, Next to our projected income performance. We're going to explain why we're projecting what we're projecting. We're going to show them rent comps uh, to validate the, uh, the post-renovated you know, market rents that we're going to be asking on the units uh, of the, you know, we're syndicating multifamily apartments, is what we do. So we're going to show them the rents that we're projecting to achieve on those units. Uh, we're going to show them uh, the financing structure and the cash flow statement and a waterfall of how the money is divided, along with a sensitivity analysis that's going to give them somewhere between 200 and 300 different combinations of scenarios of, you know, income above target or below target, cap rates above target and below target, occupancy above target and below target. And what does that do to the return so that people can kind of see the landscape of, you know, what, what is, it take to make this deal go bad? And and how good could it get? Uh, And they can see all of those things. And we share our whole due diligence package with them as they can see the rent rolls and financial statements and contracts and all of that stuff, complete transparency and visibility so they can get comfortable that this deal meets their goals and objectives. So all we're doing is delivering information.
0: Nice. So, so I know you want that information to be delivered as as professional as possible and laid out in a way they can understand it. You know, so how do you do, is that, you know, are you, are you reaching out through email first or are you phone calling first? Or, you know, what, what does that process look like? Is it an email, then a phone call or do you include a video? How do you do that?
1: Yeah. You know, we've done a variety of different things. Um, and it also depends on the deal a little bit and, and the response to the deal. So generally speaking, uh, our our um, our entire flow basically looks like this. Somehow, some way, someone will find out about us. Whether they see me on a podcast, they saw me on Bigger Pockets at a conference, speaking at a conference, just heard about us, internet search, whatever. They they come to us and find us and get into our ecosystem. From that point, we uh, uh, my investor relations uh, vice president will have a will have a phone call with every new prospect and get to know them and we'll start building that relationship with them. We want to learn about their goals and objectives. Right now it's all about them. It's all about the investor and learning about the investor. So that's kind of step one. Once we've gotten through all of that and when they're in our, uh, our database, we've had, a, you know, we've had a conversation or a series of conversations with them. We've learned about them. Uh, next thing that happens is when we have an offering, they'll receive an email. Okay. Say, I want to back up just a little bit. What yeah. are, you know, what are you like,
0: you're talking to that investor. What is it you want to know about them? What, what are you asking them? What are some like main things that are that you definitely want to ask them?
1: Well, we want to ask them what their investment goals are, what their objectives are. Um, we want to know, you know, how old they are, if they're married and have kids uh, you know, we want, you know, what's their investment experience uh, you know, what, You know, what's their experience specifically in real estate? Have they invested in other passive syndications before? And some of these questions may seem kind of odd, but what we're really looking for is, you know, if you're 90, uh, you know, the investments that are, you know, appropriate for you might be different than if you're 35. And so, you know, we want to try to get a feel for, you know, where, where in life is this investor so that we can show them investments. That are going to be the best fit for them. And we want to know about their risk tolerance, uh, you know, so you don't want to show, you know, a deep value add deal that's going to have no cash flow in the first year to a retired person that is depending upon their cash flow from their investments for their living expenses. Uh, You know, it's just what we're trying to learn is, you know, what are their needs? You know, are they growth oriented or cash flow oriented? all of that kind of stuff because we have a variety of different investments and we want to make sure they get the right fit.
0: Nice. Okay. Okay. So now you got a deal.
1: Now we got a deal. We send out the email uh, saying, you know, we have an offering if you're interested in, you know, here's a brief synopsis of the offering, which is usually just a paragraph. Um, and, and generally we'll have a button they can click on that will send them into a personalized data room where inside the data room they can see pictures of the the property, they can see documents related to it such as a slide deck that has all of that information I just outlined to you along with some more stuff, Um, background pictures, the whole thing, everything. Um, Private placement memorandums, subscription agreements, all that stuff is in there so they can see all of the different materials for the offering and make an investment decision. So it starts with the email, they look at the stuff, they decide, you know, whether or not they want to invest. If they do want to invest, you know, when the, when everything's ready, they can subscribe right online through our, uh, our, our portal through our website and, and invest in it. It's pretty simple.
0: Nice. Okay. So, so right away you're, you're putting this simple email out short, Paragraph just about the deal. If they're interested, you have a button, and then they can they can go into this the data room, and and then you're going to have everything there for them to see. Whatever you want to see, all the information's here, right? And so then I, I would imagine there's going to be numerous that are going to have questions. I, I'm sure. I know. I mean, like me, there's numerous that will, or I can relate that will just say, "Yeah, I want to invest," and and you're and then you're thinking, "Well, did you actually read the documents?" You know, but <laughs> but then again, I know there's there's many who have lots of, of valid questions, and so you know how you know they're they're calling in. You know, how are you funneling those calls, and what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So you know, we've been doing this for a long time, and you know, through the course of that, we've learned a lot of investor questions. So. What we do, what we try to do is to answer as many of those anticipated questions as possible in the offering package. Um, sometimes, of course, that gets completely missed or didn't get read or whatever the case may be, uh, or they just have additional questions. So what we try to do first is try to answer as many questions up front as we can through the materials. Let them speak for themselves. The next thing we'll do is uh, we'll put together a frequently asked questions list, And sometimes the fact list is based upon questions we've received from other deals or other times it might be, you know, Hey, we've got five calls on this one and everybody wants to know this. So we'll put that in the frequently asked questions list and that uh, list goes into the portal so they can see that as well. And then we always encourage people to reach out to us with questions. And so a lot of times they'll send an email to Bob, our senior VP of investor relations. He'll get the email. Uh, and he'll answer the question, or if he doesn't have the answer, he'll come to me and say, hey, somebody's asking about the exit cap rate projection and how we arrived at that. Um, you know, can you get me an answer? And, and I'll, I'll write out an answer in the email that he uh, will send to uh, the person asking the question. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll get a 10-question 10, 10 list, you know, where we're, we're answering a lot of questions, or maybe it's one or two. And sometimes we'll get ones where, you know, we'll just say, let's just get this guy on the phone and we'll answer all of his questions because some of our questions, some of our answers are going to lead to more questions and we can hit it all at once. So, you know, oftentimes we'll have a phone call with investors and spend a half an hour, even an hour on the phone with some of them sometimes just going through all of their questions that they may have. Generally, newer investors that haven't invested in a lot of offerings will have more questions than one that have invested in lots of offerings, but it's all across the board.
0: Okay. So I like the frequently asked questions list too. And you're like answering these frequently asked questions. You're putting that in your data room. So that's
1: saving you a lot of time. It does. Yeah, it does. You'd be surprised how, how much that really helps. Another thing that we do that that really helps a lot is we'll put together at a side exhibit called understanding the financials. And in that exhibit, what we'll do is we'll show them, you know, the financial exhibits on a multi multifamily get very complex and how does the uh, how does the rent roll relate to the operating statement? How does the operating statement relate to the cash flow statement? How does the cash flow statement relate to the waterfall? And how does all that relate to what I get? You know, so we we create this whole like almost like a flow chart to show people, you know, how to connect the dots so that they understand what all those complicated financial exhibits look like. Because a confused mind says no, and we want people to be able to understand these complicated financials. Uh, and, you know, sometimes they're afraid to ask. So they just say no. Uh, so we've been, uh, we've found that that's a really useful tool.
0: I like that quote, a confused mind says no. I like that. And it sounds is. like, I mean, I haven't heard anyone lay it out in this detail. I love the the side exhibit you're talking about, understanding the financials and because they are complicated and or and if, you have, if you're not used to underwriting multifamily, especially large deals like you're doing, that's going to look like a jumbled up mess.
1: <laughs> it know? does yeah. yeah yeah people get glazed over really quickly it's like you know they see the pictures and it's exciting and they see what you're going to do and it's exciting and then they get to the financial page and it's like <laughs> you know that's it it's just stone-faced and then, uh they get bored to death now we have some that oh they love this stuff they're breaking out a calculator and they're trying to follow the calculations spreadsheet and then you know we'll get calls like Hey, you know, in this investor waterfall, you know, how did you arrive at this number? Because I've tried adding it up every single way and I can't get this to equal this, you know, and then you explain, okay, well, this is exactly how this works, you know? So we've had it where, you know, sometimes, you know, we have to dig into the formula in, you know, in our templates to like lay out exactly how that number is arrived at for them because some people want to know to that level of detail. Now, others don't care. Uh, they, don't, they don't even want to see the numbers. It's like it just it caused them to go blank so you know we we just want to educate as much as possible
0: thank you for being with us again today i hope that you have learned a lot from the show don't forget to like and subscribe i hope you're telling your friends about the real estate syndication show and how they can also build wealth in real estate you can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today